the Getting Better Now podcast, presented by the Golf Business Network, the show by golf professionals for golf professionals, profiling experts from inside and outside the golf industry to help you advance your career, make a lasting impact, and achieve your goals. Here's your host, PGA professional from St. David's Golf Club, Dean Candle. Welcome back to another episode of the Getting Better Now podcast. In this episode, I'm happy to have on one of my mentors. Jim Smith Jr. is the director of golf at the Philadelphia Cricket Club in Flowertown, Pennsylvania. A past president of the Philadelphia section, Jim has been awarded the section's Bill Straws Ball Award twice, the Merchandiser of the Year Award, as well as being named the Golf Professional of the Year in 2005. Jim's become a go-to guy for career advice and operational insight. He's successfully guided many of his staff members onto their own head professional positions and continues to recruit and train at a very high level. In this episode, Jim shares his keys to staying organized and succeeding in such a high-volume and fast-paced environment, as well as his experiences in coaching assistants through the head professional interview process. He also explains his model for collecting feedback from his membership so he can be responsive and keep his finger on the pulse of the club. It's a really simple system, but as you'll learn, it takes a consistent commitment. And as promised in the title, we go into his background and the non-traditional path he navigated to land as the director of golf at a top 100 club. It may not be that typical path that you think most would take, so I think you'll really find this interesting and beneficial for some of you that may be in the same situation. So here it is, our conversation with Jim Smith Jr. from the Philadelphia Cricket Club. I hope you enjoy it. Jim Smith, how are you? Thank you for your time today. Hey, Dean, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. I'm looking forward to this conversation. I think there's some good stuff we're going to be able to dive into about your experience and your career that I think is going to really bring some good value to everyone listening here. But if we could just start talking about a little bit about the Cricket Club and give everybody a little bit of context uh, about the club itself and your position there. Sure. I've been the director of golf there. Actually, this is my my 13th year. I'm actually serving in the uh, interim... GM COO capacity for about probably six to eight months while we're looking for a new GM. So hands are full. It's a big place. Oldest club in America. Founded in 1854. Um, you know, 45 holes of golf, um, squash, tennis, pool, you name it, we have it. A big membership. We've got 725 full golf members. We've got another 50 golf and waiting, and then we have another 750 what are called intermediate members, which means they have a limited amount of golf so we do we're an active place we do 50,000 rounds a year we do 20 on Wissahickon 20,000 on Militia Hill and we do 10,000 on our nine hole St. Martin's course and um, in the golf area we have somewhere on in the in the vicinity of between 1,200 and 1,500 events that need some level of um, supervision during uh, the course of a golf season. Wow so Obviously, it's a really busy place, which keeps you extremely busy, but now you throw in this interim GM COO role. role. Um, It's got to be crazy right now, but talk about then uh, the way you're keeping all of this organized. What systems have you been able to put in place or had in place that now specifically make you able to jump in and take over GM COO responsibilities with director of golf overseeing 50,000 rounds? 
Um, you know, when when there's a lot going on, um, you have to rely on other people. I know uh, I'm a better delegator than I was, let's say, 15 years ago. Um, so the, the main thing is is that you have to have systems that allow you to delegate and to hold people accountable. So I'm a I'm a trust but verify kind of guy. Um, you know that um, I I'm a guy who is generally pretty well organized. So my tools are not really complicated, but um, for me they seem to work. So I use a master uh, Excel spreadsheet to track every activity going on at the club, and it lets me see a picture of everything that's happening. And then I use that Excel spreadsheet to assign. Um, supervisory responsibilities to various staff. So this is something that we've been doing in golf and we've just transferred it into other areas of the club temporarily. Um, And then, you know, I'm an early bird, so I get up really early and uh, the first thing I do when I get in is I send out uh, what's called daily notes and that's just a summary to everybody about what's going on that day. It could be, um, and, and I cut and paste the Excel spreadsheet so everybody knows and is reminded of their responsibilities. But you know, the big thing is, you know, you have to communicate uh, diligently and effectively with the people that you work with. I'm not a process-driven guy as much as I am a, resu- a results-driven person, so my tendency is to basically uh, outline for people, this is what we need done, go do it. Um, if, you, if you're not sure how to do it or you need support, raise your hand and ask for it. And then, as I said before, I'm a trust but verify guy. So during the process of them trying to get it done, I'll periodically check in. How you doing? Keep me updated. Send me an email. Um, so it does mean there's a lot of emails going back and forth. Um, emails are a really effective tool as opposed to having meetings where you're trying to get everybody in one place at one time. That's hard to do. Um, but, you know, so far so good. I'm lucky to work with a lot of great people who absorb responsibility very readily and easily. And... Uh, I like to tell people my main job is make sure the right people are in the right places at the right times doing the right things. Right. Talk a little bit more about then uh, trust but verify. Um, how has that evolved over time and what exactly does that mean? Well, you know, in, in, a, big, in a big club like we are with a lot of different staff, you can't be everywhere. Um, so we spend a lot of time in the hiring process trying to make sure that we hire, I call them major leaguers. Um, you know, you're going to learn a lot when you work at the cricket club just by virtue of the fact that a lot gets thrown at you. But we're trying to find people who want to own uh, issues, problems, uh, projects, and who want to do it on their own. Um, so what I'm trying to do basically is make sure that we give those people clear communication, uh, clear expectations, and then the trust but verify comes in in that just as an example, if, if we have an event coming up, let's say we have a stag day coming up on May 15th, that will have been assigned to somebody back in March. So that person knew since beginning of March that he was going to run this event. Between that time and the event time, I'll periodically just check in. Hey, where are you on this? Where are you on the checklists that we use? Have you accomplished this? Do you need any help? Do you need support? Um, so a lot of my day is really just checking in with people, making sure that they're making progress and getting done what they need to get done. Are those structured check-ins, like are you blocking time, say, I need to check in with this guy today and that guy tomorrow, or it's just, hey, I have five minutes, let me go pop in and see how he's doing? It's generally the latter. Um, So this Excel spreadsheet that I use that has every task on it, one of of my, another big responsibility that I have is it's my job to look into the future. It's my job to anticipate and not react. It's my job to put 
the staff in a position where they're being proactive and not reactive. So one of the things that I'm doing every day is I'm looking at my master activity schedule and I'm looking a week, two weeks, three weeks out every single day. And what happens is when I do that, it jars me to say, you know what, we've got this event coming up in two weeks. Let me check in with you know Joe, who's running that event. And this event's coming up next week. Let me check in with, with Pete. Um, so while we do have the structure in place for people to offer feedback, which is through our daily notes and responding to that, most of the check-ins that I do are just me looking at the master schedule and saying, all right, who do I need to check in with today to make sure that things are progressing? Okay, so... I want to jump back to this delegating thing a little bit because a, a lot of this falls into delegating when you're looking at a master activity schedule and who's going to take care of what, who's the right person to to run this event or run that program. You said that you're a better delegator now than you were 15 years ago. Why and how? Um, the, the why is because I had to be. Um, you know, 15 years ago, I was the GM and director of Golf at Talamore, and it was a club that had, you know, 350 members. The gross revenues were about $6 million at that time. And now I'm at a club that has, you know, 1,500 members and gross revenues that exceed $20 million with a lot more going on. So bigger staff, you know, I learned very quickly that as much as I'd like to be in everywhere and, and you know, control the outcome of everything, um, ultimately... It, the, the larger the operation you're in, the harder that is and the less effective that is. So, you know, most of our goal, most of my goal now is surround myself with awesome people, um, you know, and give them the tools and the support that they need to get things done. And frankly, it's, it's tough sometimes for the staff because I probably actually now over-delegate, meaning I throw a lot of stuff at uh, our two head professionals and their support staff. I throw a lot of stuff at our two caddy masters. And my feeling is is that if they're struggling to absorb it, they're going to raise their hand and say, hey, listen, I need some help here. Or I may notice uh, you know, something getting missed, at which point I'll uh, articulate that to whomever's responsible. And that give and take, that constant conversation leads to the understanding that, you know what, maybe I pushed it a little bit too hard here. I want our, our staff to be challenged. I want them to feel um, uh, empowered. Uh, I want them to feel like they're accomplishing things because at the end of the day, my job is to put the staff in a position so that they can move into their own job. And in a perfect scenario, when they take their own job, they don't see anything in that job that they haven't seen at Cricket. Well, certainly with the volume at Cricket, I mean, you you do see a lot. I I can certainly speak to that personally, but so you started to talk about then getting guys their own jobs. So let's jump in there. It's certainly been something that you've succeeded in at, during the course of your career at cricket and even before that. Was this a conscious decision for you to say, I want to be the, the guy that's promoting assistance to head pro jobs? 100%. I remember um, when I got the job at cricket, you know, part of – Part of guys getting jobs, you know, there's a lot of different ways to do it, but the, the best way, the easiest way, the, 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 the pathway that works the best is to work at a great club, well-known club, for a great golf professional. So, you know, the great club was kind of in my lap when I got the job, um, and I was lucky to, to land at a place like Cricket because of its reputation and, and, and size. 
I needed to become a great golf professional, and it was kind of like a mutually beneficial decision. My thought was, if I can go out and get great people and do whatever I can to help them get jobs, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to become a better golf professional because I'm going to learn from them. And they're going to be happy working with me because they know in the end, whether they work for me for a year or we work together for five or six years, everybody that, that I work with knows that I'm totally cool with them and promoting them to move on to their own job. I want them to have more opportunities. So it's kind of been mutually beneficial, frankly. I've, I've probably, in all honesty, learned more from the people that I work with than I've taught. Um, and every time that we get somebody new in and I learn, the next guy that comes in has got that much more of a base of knowledge from which to, to tap into. Um, so it's been like a, a virtuous cycle. Um, the more guys that get jobs, the better the guys that you tend to get because more people want to come work with you. And it just continues in that, that manner. So what have you seen change over time as guys have um, been seeking out these high-level jobs, these head professional jobs? Have you seen the process change, the actual mechanics of I'm applying, I'm getting letters, I'm going to interviews, uh, second interviews? Have you seen any of this change over the last seven, eight years? You know, well, clearly one major change is uh, the fact that there's more search firms involved. I mean, it seems like you know, 10 or 15 years ago, everything was going through the PGA of America, and now it seems like the bulk of jobs, are, especially the better jobs, are all being handled by, um, by search firms. So we've had to adjust our, uh, our networking strategies uh, to better <coughs> accommodate that, that change. Um, but, you know, in terms of getting jobs, I mean, one of the things, and, and you know this because this is something we've talked about before, but I, you could have the world's best resume. You could be, you know, polished and great looking and just look like you're, you know, an all-American golf professional. And all those things are good. But what actually gets people jobs is what they do every day. It's the experience that they deliver. It's the habits that they develop. Because you never know that one person that walks in the golf shop could be the golf chair at a club who knows he's going to be looking for a golf professional in six months. And if he has a great experience... And he walks away from the club and goes, man, those people really get it. Those are the things that open doors. And, you know, at, at cricket, I mean, my job, much of my job when it comes to the guys is is figuring out ways to open doors. It's a law of numbers. If you get enough opportunities to interview, you're probably going to get a job sooner or later. And, um, by the way, that's another thing that I've noticed, which is, you know, there has been, ironically enough, there's been a lot of turnover and a lot of changed jobs in the last probably five or seven years probably due to the fact that the industry is changing from, let's call it a more traditional golf pro role where you teach, you play, and you merchandise to a role where you are much more of an administrator. You're a businessman responsible for a portion of the profit and loss statement. Um, so that's another area that we're conscious of making sure guys are comfortable manage, managing. And that changeover, do you feel like that's tied in along with these search firms too? Has that been something that the guys that are interviewing there know that they're going to be asked questions like that about the business side of it rather than the traditional role? A hundred percent, a hundred percent. I mean, there's not a club in America with the exception of places like Augusta National that isn't worried about the bottom line, and they need to be, you know, rightfully so. So hiring a director of golf or a head professional who can balance a great experience with um, maintaining the, the proper bottom line is key, and every job that any of our guys in the last 10 years 
uh, and particularly in the last five or seven I've interviewed for, the business piece of it's become much more important. So along the lines of the interview process then, what's one thing that you've coached the guys to do during the process that you think really works that maybe helps them stand out and that maybe everybody else isn't doing during the process? Wow, you're asking me to, to let my secrets out. Um, they're, they're, <laughs> you can be a general if you want, but... There, there are, there's a lot of different techniques that a lot of different guys use. Um, one, one thing that, I t- that, that we believe in um, that seems to have worked well is when somebody goes into a situation and they're interviewing for a job, they're going to ask, get asked questions by the committee or by the search firm. Okay, what are you going to do? All right, well... How can you go into a situation that you know nothing about and suggest that, you know what, I'm going to teach this teaching method, or I'm going to sell clubs this way, or I'm going to run these programs, or I'm going to I'm going to run the member guests using this format. You're walking into somebody else's house, and when you walk into somebody else's house, they don't like to be told how their house should look. So our guys, and I think this is something good for anybody interviewing, we always reference uh, offering ideas as this is what we've seen uh, be successful in our situation. Okay, so for example, if I go into an interview and somebody says, "What kind of you know how, how should we run our women's program?" The answer isn't going to be, "Well, this is what you should do." The answer is, you know, I've actually seen it done at different ways at different clubs. Here are some of the programs that we run at the cricket club that are successful. Okay, and by doing it that way, you're you're offering the ideas that they want to hear, but you're not saying to them take it or leave it, this is the way you got to do it. You're just basically throwing ideas on the table. If they like it, you work with them to implement it. If they don't, you work within their system. But you can't, you got to be really careful walking the line between, in an interview, between telling them what you're going to do and blowing their doors off and making them go, holy cow, wait a minute, who does this guy think he is? We got a club that we like. So then what would you say to the guy who's not at the cricket club? Maybe he's not at this high-volume place where there are tons of opportunities to do this program, run that event, but they want to prepare for that interview process. And those, those questions about what would you do if? Well, one way is to go out and gain experience that you don't have by asking guys that have the experience to share it with you. I've been... And I and I you know I'm not going to give you any names, but you know the guys know who they are. I've probably had I don't know ten or twelve guys in the last five years call me up and say, "Listen, can I come over and spend a couple hours with you, watch your operation, and pick your brain about some of the things that you do?" Those ten or twelve guys now have a leg up over guys that didn't do that. And imagine if those guys do that not just with me, but they do it you know with multiple guys. Listen, I'll, I'll reference this back to you. Yes, cricket is big. Yes, there's a lot going on. But we're far from you know the, the be-all, end-all. We have so much more to learn. I take our entire staff to another club in March every year. We pick a club that we want to emulate, or we pick a club where we think we can steal ideas. And you've been on these trips. And we go to those clubs, and we spend three, four, five hours with the professional staff asking questions, and then maybe we play golf. You can never stop learning. And when you're in an interview situation, if you can demonstrate to the committee that what you couldn't learn in your location, you went out and learned some other way, isn't that a powerful way to differentiate yourself from somebody who didn't do that? Sure, without a doubt. 
So that's awesome info about the interview process, and I think some stuff that people can really get some value from. Let's backtrack a little bit about your path because you know you reference there's there's a there's a way to get a good job, and it's usually to work at a great club for a great golf professional. But let's look at your history. Is that the way that your career shook out? No. <laughs> Ironically enough, um, I generally so the, so there's I think there's two ways to um, to. To, the two best ways to become a, a, a head professional at a, at, a, at a club or a job that you can hold for 10 or 15 or 20 years. One is what I said before, you know, work at great clubs for great golf professionals. What you're doing by doing that is you're kind of getting in the network. Uh, for lack of a better t- term, you're, you're with the in crowd. Um, and, and like it or not, it exists. The other way is to get a head professional job as quickly as possible and turn it into something. So like in my case... I was really lucky. I was an, uh, an assistant professional for a year at Riverton when I was 23, and the club that I was, uh, where I was actually a fitness member at in Jenkintown called the Abington Club also had a nine-hole golf course, and an opportunity presented itself for me to become the head pro there at 24. Now, there was a lot of people that, would, that, that probably could, could have said at that time, you're committing career suicide, going to a little nine-hole podunk club, but my thought was... I'm the guy in charge at age 24, and I'm going to get on the job learning and experience. And, you know, I was there for five years and made some connections there. And because I was a head pro, it allowed me to springboard into another head pro job, which ended up being Talamore when I was 28. Mm-hmm. Talk a little bit about your job there at Talamore. So um, I got hired there. Uh, you Basically, some members at the Abington Club um, were building homes at Talamore. And they approached me and told me they were looking for a pro and recommended me to the owner. He called me up literally the same day he called me. He offered me the job after I interviewed. So I moved there when I was 28. And a year into that job, the GM left or came into my office and said, hey, listen, I'm leaving. I'm going to open my own business. And he wanted to recommend me for the GM job. And, of course, I'm like, man, I've never been a GM. I don't know anything about food and beverage or anything like that. And he's like, listen, you're smart. You know what you're doing. It's not that hard. And... Maybe in, 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 I was might have been in sort of self-preservation mode. I was kind of like, I can either take this job and make some more money and work really hard and maybe be successful, or I can let a new GM come in who might not like me, who might make my, my world miserable. And I was like, you know what, I'm going to take it. And, you know, Bob Levy, who's the owner of Talamore, gave me a ton of rope, um, made a lot of mistakes, but got to be the GM director of golf there for basically 10 years. Um, and again... It was the connections at Talamore. It was cricket club members that were coming to Talamore that led to my opportunity at the cricket club. And that goes back to what you do every day. If what I was doing at the Abington Club was terrible, nobody there would have recommended me for the Talamore job. And if what was occurring at Talamore wasn't anything other than a really good experience, the people who from cricket who were coming up there would have never recommended me to cricket. It was what they were experiencing that got me those opportunities. Yeah, so let's put that a little bit into context. So Talamore is an 18-hole ownership uh, situation club. There's homes around the golf course. Uh, it's in the same vicinity of the cricket club. Uh, but as clubs go, someone may view them quite differently, correct? We could say that. Yeah, right. absolutely, absolutely. And so in your mindset back then at Talamore, was it, well, if I do a great job here, I might get to a place like the cricket club or – was it more focused on my job's just to do a great job every day? 
I've my job was to do a great job every day, and if the right opportunity presented itself, it would present itself. I know that's a little maybe like pie in the sky thinking, but I've always believed you know good things happen to good people, bad things happen to bad, and if you just do a great job, somebody will notice. And when I was a cricket, or excuse me, when I was at Talamore, I was there for like I said, just under ten years. I only interviewed for. Um, Two other jobs. Uh, I interviewed at Lookaway and I interviewed at Waynesboro. Both jobs I got down to the final three, and neither job I got. And that was, as my wife likes to say, everything happens for a reason. And lo and behold, cricket comes along. And I will tell you this about the cricket club job. I really, to this day, I still feel pressure to perform, in part because places like cricket tend to... um, the perception is is that you need to have a pedigree, right, to get these into the better clubs. And I was like the anti-pedigree guy getting this job. I was kind of like, you know, the average Joe who got lucky. Um, and I still feel that way. So I still feel like I need to do a great job every day to prove to the golf world that you don't need a pedigree to do a great job at a great club. Dave McNabb is another great example of that. You know, Dave spent years and years down at Cavaliers, which similar club as Talamore, um, and just, you know, working class guy, hardworking guy, great guy, and lo and behold, the Applebrook job pops up, and um, so he and I actually chat about that a lot, you know, we've got we've got a responsibility to make sure that we can show the golf world that both paths work. Right, and I think that's the value in your story, and what I wanted to talk about today, to, to show people that it's not just one path, that there are other opportunities out there and other are other ways to go about that. I think one could even argue that your mindset of, I'm going to go and get this hands-on experience so that when I get the job, I've already done it at some level, is that could be more successful than just learning, learning, learning about what you're going to do when you get the job, right? Um, your path definitely could be more worthwhile, but it's just not as common. No question about it. And and the guys who who I currently have um, who are, who have been interviewing, you know, one of the things that pops up in the interviews is, as the head professional at the cricket club, what level of of do quote unquote do you really have with Jim there, um, or with me there? So it's clearly a question that that search committees and um, search firms want to understand, which is how much experience do you have with the do. Of, of actually being neck deep in all this, and clearly, if you're the top guy at a club, um, you know, pick a pick any pick a pick a nice public golf course. You're the do guy. That's a hard job, um, and that that will resonate with a lot of different places. No doubt. Uh, I just want to talk before we close out. You penned a letter to uh, the Philadelphia section over the over the winter. And you pinpointed feedback as, I guess, your most important uh, asset to improving at your job and doing a great job every day. Talk a little bit about feedback and about that process that you've implemented. Absolutely. I mean, feedback is something that a lot of people are, are afraid of, um, and I don't think that that's warranted. You know, nobody likes to be told they're doing a bad job. Nobody likes to hear criticism. But how can you honestly improve if you don't understand where people's people perceive your your challenges to be. Um, and what happens a lot of times at a club is, you know, let's use you and I as an example. We've developed relationships with the bulk of our members. Hopefully they know and like us. And the more they like you, 
harder it is for them sometimes to just out of the blue walk up to you and say, hey, you know what, I noticed an issue, because they don't want to hurt your feelings. So it's like this double-edged sword. So I'm a huge believer that you've got to create a tool to give members the opportunity to offer you feedback. And the tool that we use, we call PCCQ. Um, It's just a name that I picked out of uh, different names that we considered, but it's based on the Net Promoter System, which I know you're familiar with, but for those people who aren't, it's it's a really simple feedback loop that many of the best companies in the world use. And in its simplest form, you ask somebody, on a scale of 1 to 10, with 10 being absolutely and 1 being no way, would you recommend our products or services to friends or family? Okay? And the goal, theoretically, is is to to get all your ratings, you know, 7 and above, but ideally you want 9s and 10s. Well, we took that feedback loop and we created PCCQ every day from April 1st until October 31st, which is our golf season. I randomly send that question along with a four-question survey that we use uh, SurveyMonkey for um, to three different people randomly. And their responses are anonymous. Uh, sometimes I'll pick people off the tee sheet who played the day before. A lot of times I'll intentionally pick somebody who I know maybe didn't have a great experience, like maybe a caddy put their bag in the wrong or their club in the wrong bag, or maybe play was slow that day. Uh, and then what happens is almost every single person replies because they're getting the email personally from me. And the email says, "Hey, listen, we need your feedback to improve. Please share it, but you can do it anonymously, right?" So we get on an almost 100% um, uh, completion rate. Then what I do is once a month, I just did this actually on uh, Saturday, I take all of the replies that come in, good, bad, ugly, doesn't matter. I cut and paste them, and I send it to the entire golf staff and to all of our club leaders. Because I want everybody to see the positive feedback that we get, which we get a lot of, and that's nice. And I want everybody to see the negative feedback. And sometimes the feedback you get, you can make an immediate change on. Um, so an example would be, we had an issue where the clocks that we had on our first tee that you know, were our starting clocks weren't functioning properly. Uh, so we took it off the tee until we could get a new clock built. And we got feedback from a member that, listen, that's really important to them because they believe that having the first tee operate on time is a big part of the golf experience. We didn't think it would get missed, but it did. So literally the next day we had a clock back out there. And then ironically enough, I got an email from this member who, when he re- returned the PCCQ, it was anonymous. But he sent me an email uh, a day later and said, hey, man, I love the move with the clocks. Thanks for doing that. So I put two and two together and figured he was the guy. But that's the point is, is that if you're getting feedback, a lot of the stuff you can really deal with quickly and make positive change. Some of it you can't. But it can help shape how you manage your operation. But you can't be afraid to ask for it. So how do you decide then what's not actionable? So the clock thing, I mean, that's easy, right? But you probably get some feedback that you think, well, either that doesn't make sense for us or uh, that's not going to work. How do you walk that line? It's a great question. I'll give you an example. So another, so one of the negative feedbacks that we got in April was that the pro shop prices were too high. Okay. I mean, and I, <laughs> I own the shop. Um, so, you know, it'd be really easy to run out and lower all the prices. But we, I, I actually talked with the staff. The model that we use for our markups is the exact same model that we have used for 13 years. So 
prices are a little bit higher because what we pay for shirts is higher than it was 13 years ago. So that's it's a fair, you know, but like how do you how do you address that? How do I change that person's perception about the pricing? Well, the fact of the matter is is I'm not going to send an email. First of all, I don't know who it is, so I can't re- reply directly. I'm not going to send an email out to the whole membership justifying my pricing because I got one piece of feedback, right? But what I am going to do is I'm going to tuck that one away. And there might be an opportunity at some point in a communication to the membership, whether it's in an email or a newsletter article, where I might be able to somehow put a note in there that addresses that. Because in my mind, just that person responding, if he's thinking it, he's probably not alone. So it might warrant at some point, but not on its own. You know, you can't react to everything. That's just the reality of it. But you can take these little tidbits and you can say to yourself, you know what? There might be a way for me to address this uh, either through some sort of communication or if you believe that it's doable, well, then you do it. And it'll just work its way through the system that, hey, a change was made and hopefully that person notices it. So how much better is your pulse on the membership now after implementing this system than before? That's way better. I mean, and again, this is also, if you think about it, this is actually a form of delegating. Um, when I, I had less to do, I could spend more time just talking to members and gathering feedback, and that's still something that's really important. Like, I walk up, I walk the, uh, the, the patio during lunch every day just to say hi to people and get feedback. But this has given us a systemic way to gather information, and it really gives, not just me, but because I share it with everybody, it helps club leadership and the entire golf staff understand what's important to our members and what isn't. So if you were to try to pinpoint one thing that you're doing that that helps make everything work, that if you didn't do, things might fail or not be clicking at a high level, would you say this feedback loop is it? Is it? So I would I the the answer is yes and no. The feedback loop is uh, an an integral part of our constant improvement of us always trying to be better, which we all think would be a good thing. Obviously, we don't want to be going the the other way. Um, but in terms of not missing things and making sure the operation runs the right way, it's this master activity schedule that I use, and it's the daily notes. Those two things. It is making sure that everybody's informed well ahead of time um, so that nobody's running around like a fire drill. Like you said, anticipate so you don't have to react. And that's really that in in a process, right, is that spreadsheet and that daily communication. Without question. Yeah, I think that um, just shows that that effort on the front end makes everything work on the back end rather than rolling into the season or going day by day saying, hey, what are we going to do today? Because I didn't have time to plan for today because I was too busy yesterday, right? You know, a funny story about that is I got a call from uh, from one of our interns who was with us last year. He's at North Carolina State. And this year we have two NC State interns and a Clemson University intern coming in. When we hired the interns, which was back in January, we added them to our email list, our staff email list. So even though they're not coming until May 12th, They've been on the email list for five months. And this intern I spoke with the other day was like, these guys are totally blown away at the level of information and detail that is being distributed through these emails. And they already feel like they know the operation and are part of it without having even stepped foot on the property yet. They're like, they're genuinely excited 
that they that they're going to know what they're going to be doing, not just showing up and going, okay, what do I do? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a great solution to the issue that most people or a lot of people run into with interns is, you know, it's May 12th, he or she shows up, and she's not up to speed until July 12th on what's going on at the club. So doing that ahead of time and making them feel like part of the team is really a worthwhile exercise there. So, well, Jimmy, I just want to thank you for your time today. I think this was a lot of uh, great information, some actionable stuff that everybody can uh, walk away with today about uh, the interview process. I think your path to the cricket club is really valuable for a lot of people out there who are maybe on a track like that, knowing that uh, there can be a light at the end of the tunnel. So uh, thank you for your time. Uh, it's been great chatting with you. Happy to do it. Thanks for asking me. And for any listeners, you know, if you all ever need, um, if you ever want to get a second opinion or I can help with anything, anybody can call or email me. My email is jsmith at philacricket, P-H-I-L-A cricket.com. Um, happy to to help, you know, whoever I can, whenever I can. Thanks, Jim. Appreciate it. All right, man. It. Thanks, Dean. This was the Getting Better Now podcast presented by the Golf Business Network. Head over to iTunes to subscribe so you don't miss an episode and be sure to rate and review while you're there. For more information, go to golfbusinessnetwork.com.